We have come to understand that our only boast is there. There is nothing found good in us. The flesh profits nothing. What does profit is the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ. The life that he lived, the death that he died, all done for his people. All done so that we might not suffer condemnation and separation from you forever in a place called hell. We, O oh God, glory. We glory in the cross. And under its shadow is our abiding place. And we find our, our safest posture to be as close to that cross as we can possibly get. Father, there's nothing in our hands that we bring. It is simply to that cross that we cling. Lord God, thank you for all of the kindnesses that you have shown us in this past week. However, there are some brothers and sisters who have gotten some very bad news this past week. And they bring the, the, uh, the aroma of that bad news into this room with them this morning. And I pray that the fellowship of your people, the preached and spoken and sung and prayed word of God, and in the celebration of the cornerstone of our faith and the sacraments, might be to them a renewal of hope. For others who are in a broad place, O oh God, we pray that their, their blessing might be used to comfort those who walk in not so comforted. Lord, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray for our president and I ask that you will give him wisdom that originates in heaven. And that the decisions that are made about, about war and peace, about life and death, I pray, O oh God, that those decisions will find their origin in the throne room of heaven. Now, Father, pre prepare your people. Prepare them in giving. Prepare them in preaching. And we pray that our singing has prepared us to meet you around this table where we remember afresh the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the hope of every sinner. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to uh, the book of Acts as we continue our study of that book, hoping to find principles on which we can continue to build this church as we pattern it after uh, a church that is described for us as the early and the first and the purest of churches. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. You follow as I read from verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before my, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. 
for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Um, as you heard me read this story, you may have uh, concluded that it's a rather mellow little story, a kind of a, a pre-Pentecost piece of trivia uh, that kind of transitions us to where the real action begins in chapter 2. But if you uh, look more closely, as, as you pay me to do, uh, you'll find some real lessons in this passage, and I, and I want to share three of those with you this morning. So what I want to do is quickly summarize the story, and then we'll look for some of the, the lessons or the applications to us. After Luke tells Theophilus about Jesus' departure, now don't forget that this book of Acts is written to a friend of Luke's. It's mentioned over in one uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's written to a man by the name of Theophilus. And after Luke has told him about Jesus' ascension, uh, he goes on then, that is, Luke goes on to give his friend a brief account of how the disciples, the, the, this small band of 120, spent the next 10 days as they awaited on Pentecost. Well, we are told that they were waiting as they were instructed to do, but that's not to suggest in any way that they were inactive. We are told that their primary uh, activity was that of prayer in verse 14. And as we'll see in a moment, they were also apparently studying their Bibles. Uh, all of this detail that you get in verse 12 about Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, all of that detail was for Theophilus's benefit. Uh, Theophilus wouldn't have known the area, and so Luke provides some details so that he can locate it. Um, in fact, you'll see Luke do the same thing in verses 18 and 19. You'll notice that's in parenthesis where he tells them about Judas, some information about Judas, about how he killed himself and what happened to the, the, uh, the money and what the field was called and all. All of that's information that uh, Theophilus could have never gotten um, except had someone who knew the inside story told him. So all of that is provided to, to bring Theophilus up to date or to keep him uh, flowing with the whole of the story. Um, their gathering place is mentioned. It's called the upper room, and it probably is the same room which you and I know of as that we call the upper room, the upper room experience where Jesus spent the last hours of his life with the disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper. 
Um, but the key thing to notice, I think, is that they're, they're described uh, in verse 14 as all being with one accord. 120 people. All unified. That's no small, uh, no small accomplishment in and of itself. That this band of people still had a real oneness about them. Um, and you'll also note, or the text also notes, that Jesus' own family was a part of that 120, including his mother Mary, which is the last time you'll see Mary mentioned in the New Testament, but it's interesting, ladies and gentlemen, and oh, so terribly significant that Mary is mentioned here. Because, you see, ladies and gentlemen, Mary defines herself as just one of the rest of the crowd. She doesn't define herself as the object of worship. She doesn't define herself as the object of intercession. She simply sees herself as one of the band that is pleading with, crying out unto her Savior, which, of course, was her own son. But she joins this band of another 120 and does not in any way make herself special or separate herself from the rest of the, uh, of the group. Um, but the key issue that was facing them as they spent this t- uh, this, these 10 days waiting is the vacancy created by the defection of Judas. And so they begin to wonder, uh, what are we going to do about a replacement for the vacancy created by Judas? And a discussion is held um, with Peter kind of leading the way, Peter uh, um, alluding to several passages of Scripture. Uh, and then a discussion is held as to the qualifications of this man who will take Judas's place. And finally, Matthias is chosen and joins the apostolic band of the other eleven. Now, that's the story. Uh, certainly, it's uh, shared with you briefly, perhaps oversimplified. But I think we can now at least uh, begin to dissect the passage and looking for some lessons for you and me. Um, here's the first thing that I want you to see about this passage. I want you to see what Peter says about the Bible. That is, what it is and how it is to be used. Uh, apparently, in these, this 10-day period, he had been studying his Bible. And as he studied the Bible, he realized that there was something that they still had to do, and that is replace Judas. Now, now notice what he says uh, about this book. Men and, This is verse 16. Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which... The Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now, you get a couple of things there, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, you get his view of what the Bible is. You know, I I have people ask me from time to time, who wrote the Bible? Well, how do you answer that? Who did write the Bible? If you say the Holy Spirit, you would be wrong. The Holy Spirit did not write the Bible. He did not pin it. He did indeed... Inspire it. And you see that in what David says. He says, what the Holy Spirit spoke through the mouth of David. That is, David was the one who pinned it, but he was pinning only that which the Holy Spirit had prompted him to say. That was Peter's view of this book. It is a book... That is a collection of the mind of God 
as black words on a white page pinned by some human instruments who were inspired and moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So what you have here is the result of the Holy Spirit's work using some men, lots of them. And so when you're reading it, you're really not reading um, what uh, David might think. What you are reading is what David penned in terms of what the Holy Spirit thinks. So when you're dealing with this book, ladies and gentlemen, and you've got quibbles with it, your quibble is not with David. Your quibble is not with Joshua or Isaiah or Paul. If you've got quibbles with the book, your quibble, your debate, must be carried on with God, who is the one who authored these words. And I, I, I add this. <laughs> this is kind of scary. But to the degree that I preach it faithfully, to the degree that I preach it accurately, if by some Holy Spirit intervention, I handle this book aright, then what you've heard in this 25 or 30 minutes together is the voice of God. Not mine. I was just the one who tried to explain to you what the Holy Spirit had said earlier. That's what this book is. But now I want you to notice how Peter uses it. Because he says, okay, we've been told for the next ten days to wait for the promise of the Father. So he's in, the, in this room, gathered with the other 119, and they're praying and studying their Bibles. And he discovers something. He discovers from two places in the book of Psalms that Judas's place is to be, his, Judas needs a replacement. That vacancy needs to be filled by somebody. So Peter, as he reads the Bible out of the book of Psalms, he's, he discovers that God has instructed something. And so he steps up to the podium and he says, folks, I just read where God said that we're supposed to do this. Based on this passage and this passage, we are instructed to do this. And so, let's get with it. Now, gang, isn't that refreshing? <laughs> isn't that refreshing? Is that the way you read your Bible? I just read my Bible this morning and it told me... And so, I'm going to have to be um, altering my lifestyle some on Monday because God said... That's the way this book is to be used, ladies and gentlemen. You might say, Jimmy, that is so simple. I've known that for decades. Well, it might be. Forgive me for insulting your intelligence. But, ladies and gentlemen, it is my opinion that the skepticism that the world and our culture is so full of has bled into the church so that we spend more time critiquing it. I wonder if that was really said. Or uh, uh, do you think that Paul really was a woman hater? Or perhaps he, Isaiah, doesn't, didn't write the whole book of Isaiah. And some of that stuff, oh, did Jesus actually walk on water? Does he actually instruct me in this area and in this area and how to, how to manage my finances or manage my marriage or parent my children or, or manage my business? Does he actually say things about that? Well, I'm not sure that I can, I can do what Peter did. 
I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, that the only way to read the Bible is just like you see it being done right here. Peter read it, he understood it, and he said, now let's go live it. And I'm saying to you, that's the only way this book is to be handled. Read it, ask the Holy Spirit to explain it to you, and for heaven's sakes, go live it. This is not a book that is designed to be a collection of sermons for the professional clergy. In fact, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I, I, have, a t- I have my own devotional life. And, and I have a tough time. Am I searching for a sermon while I'm spending time with God? That's not what this is. It's the mind of God expressed through men as black words on a white page. And lo and behold, God expects us to understand it and then go live it. Just like you see happening here. The second thing I want you to see in the text is really, it really comes to you by way of a warning. And the warning is simply this. Ladies and gentlemen, do you realize that the phony often can be found among the real? Just like here. Did you read verse 16? Excuse me, make it 14. Uh, no, make it, <laughs> uh, make it 17. <laughs> uh, talking about Judas, who was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Judas was numbered with us and had a part in this ministry. Ladies and gentlemen, he was he occupied an office. He experienced great usefulness and he was a phony. Does that frighten you? Do you know ladies and gentlemen that never before in the history of the church has a group of people this large ever gathered where everybody was real? I've heard people you set percentages about how many. I, I think that's foolishness. But oftentimes, ladies and gentlemen, you find a phony among the real. People who have the office and yet still not saved people. He had the office, but he had no grace. That's a scary thought, ladies and gentlemen. You know, you wonder if he was deceived himself. You remember in that incident where, where it's right before Jesus, it's in the Lord's Supper, and they're having the Lord's Supper, and, and Jesus says to the twelve, he says, one of you will betray me, and everybody says, is it I, Lord? Is it I? Oh, is it me? Judas was one of those guys who said, Lord, is it I? I don't know whether he had deceived himself or was he, whether he was just playing the part. I don't know what he was doing. But I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, people who have a part in the expansion of the kingdom of God sometimes are either deceived or deceivers, or maybe both. Gang, um, whatever the case may have been of Judas, uh, this kind of thing never happens overnight. Uh, the collapse, the earthquake, the failure, the uh, breakdown. It never, it, it, it always has a root system that, that is hidden from sight that has been growing for some time. And that you can, you can see it if you look hard enough. Lightning doesn't strike out of a clear blue sky. Uh, storm clouds must first gather. But don't miss this, ladies and gentlemen. That one of the things that we have to face is that oftentimes the phony are found among the real. 
Let me give you two words of encouragement. Number one, I hope that didn't surprise you. Jesus warned us it would happen. He warned us in parables, like the parable of the four soils. He warned us it would happen. He warned us about the, uh, uh, the wheat and the tares. He warned us that that would be true. So don't let it knock you off balance. But the second thing that I hope will encourage you is that, indeed, Judas's story ended up in utter disaster. In fact, I think if I understand Jesus' words in John 17, he ended up in hell. The only, play, the only one that we can for certain say is in hell is Judas. But, um, but your collapse, your earthquake, it doesn't need to end that horribly. Do you know that Peter did much the same thing that Judas did. He denied the Lord. He betrayed him. And yet Judas ended up the leader of the church. Judas hung himself. Peter was elevated to the head of the church. What's the difference? The difference was repentance. It's how you handle your sin. Because, ladies and gentlemen, there is a solution for earthquakes, spiritual, moral breakdowns. There is life after failure, if handled correctly. And it's called repentance. We deal with our sin the way the scriptures instruct us. And there's new life. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's new usefulness around the corner for us. Thirdly and finally, I wanted you to notice the process by which they elected a replacement. It was interesting, the qualifications they came up with. The qualifications were that whoever we put in Judas's place, verse 22, um, well, actually 21, must have accompanied us all the time from the beginning of the baptism and must become a witness of the res- resurrection. That is, whoever's going to take Judas's place has to have been a witness from the baptism through the resurrection. I wonder, have you ever thought why that is? Why were those the qualifications? Um, there's a couple of things, thoughts that came to my mind. Number one, you cannot really share what you haven't experienced. You really can't um, get excited about a, a new life in Christ unless you've got one. And so these guys, if they're ever going to become useful to, in this way, they have had to be participants, witnesses of this whole thing. That they're sharing their own experience instead of somebody's borrowed experience. The other thing that I thought of is it was, it was important that the, that the twelve have witnessed every one of these events because Christianity is based on historic truth. It's, it, it's, it's based on events, things that actually happen. It's not some one myth passed along the years and down the quarters of time and grew into this big thing and now we believe Jesus was born of a virgin. No, Christianity is based on experiencing history. It unfolded in history, ladies and gentlemen, completely unlike every other world religion you know of. There was one more qualification And it's mentioned in verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all. Lord, uh, we understand that ultimately the issue is one of heart. It's not ability. It's not aptitude, nor skill, nor talent, nor gifts, nor charisma, nor training, nor success, nor community approval. It's none of that stuff. The issue is, Lord, you know which heart is right. You select him. 
Remember when Samuel went to anoint David as king, and actually he didn't know it was David at the time, but and uh, the, his father Jesse paraded his, all his sons in front of him, and the, the first uh, one was Eliab, and the second one was Abinadab, and the third one was Shema, and Samuel was quite happy with any of the three. And God said, listen, Samuel, you got it all wrong, son. No. I don't look like you look. I'm concerned about hearts. Because, ladies and gentlemen, the real issue for all of us, every time, on every issue in the Christian faith, is heart. So what you have in this little story is you have a story where you find a group of people who are very tender-hearted towards Jesus Christ. Then you have the mention of a man who had no heart for Jesus Christ. And then you have mentioned the concern that there be more people who have tender hearts for Jesus Christ. The whole story, the whole of Christianity, ladies and gentlemen, has to do with the condition of your heart. You fall in one of these three categories? Because ultimately you can fool me. And you can, you can fool the people sitting in the pew with you. But this text says, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all men. Yes, he does. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do pray that um, as we head to this sacrament, that you will remind us that what the issue is has nothing to do with how much we give or how many Sunday schools we've taught or, or how frequent and regular is our church attendance. The real issue is our hearts. And I pray, O oh God, that you will soften those hearts as we gather around this time that it symbolizes for us the very cornerstone of our faith, the finished, completed, total work of Jesus Christ for his people. We commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name.